Hello and welcome to Farmland. On today's programme, we will discuss the opportunities available to farmers who want to install solar panels on farm with Chairman of the MREF, Pat Smith. And we'll also discuss animal transport legislation with MEP Billy Kelleher. But first, we're joined in studio by Seamus McMenamin from Borbia, the Sector Manager for Sheep Meat and Live Exports. Seamus, tell us about the calf export market to Europe first of all. What's the outlook? Yeah, the demand for calves has been fairly good. Um, there's been good demand from sort of our key customers would be the, the Dutch and the Spanish. Um, and there's been, the Dutch trade has got off to a good start and the, and the Spanish trade just tends to start from now on. So f up until the end of February, we'd exported about 17,000 calves uh, or just, just below it and that compares to about 12,000 calves in the same time last year. So there's been a very good start and I suppose there's there's been good demand from, from customers. Um, there's, there's sort of been a recovery in the beef trade and demand, particularly from food service. And um, there, there's a lower cattle availability in Europe. So there's good demand for the cattle that are available and that's then um, transferred across into good demand for our calves. In terms of the recent legislation that came from Europe in terms of animal transport welfare, uh, was there a concern among our industry that that could impact heavily on our calf export potential if some of the initial proposals were to, to come into force? Yeah, no, there were, there were definitely big concerns that it could impact the trade. We had the reviews in Europe and um, ongoing, and, and even during those reviews, Ireland was called out as you know best in class on several occasions. And you know the, even our level of implementation of the of the current law and current uh, legislation as it stands. I think the the reason for these reviews is that it, it, the legislation just wasn't being applied in other regions, whereas it was being applied here. So we were sort of being penalised for something that you know like we were complying with. Um, with the legislation, so no, there were concerns, and um, you know, I suppose the the initial uh, the initial recommendations, I suppose that came out, would have would have effectively ended the calf trade. You know, pushing the the calf age limit to thirty five days, uh, restriction on times and distance of transport. So that that thankfully was um, thanks to the the sort of lobbying of some of our live exporters. Um, you know some of our MEPs in Europe and things, so they they done a great job and and sort of took their the recommendations back to to something that was more realistic and more workable. Um, you know that that can allow this trade to continue, while at the same time, you know applying the law as it stands and respecting that. And you know, but obviously animal welfare of the calves being being at the front of that. For those who don't understand, I suppose the importance of our um, calf export trade, who maybe feel that we shouldn't be exporting live animals at all. Can you explain, I suppose economically, what that trade means to us as a country? Yeah, well I suppose if we look at our live export, live animal exports last year, they were valued at about £215 million. Um, and of the, there was about 240,000 cattle exported and 140,000 of those were calves and they were, they were exported in the spring. So generally between February and May. Now last year it did extend on a bit longer just with, with Covid and things, but we're not into June. But Usually the calves are exported at the start of the year. Now the seasonality of our dairy herd cabins, obviously we've got a, a million and a half dairy cows um, and they tend to calve in a, in a 12, 15 win, week window at the start of the year. So if we did not have the, the live export trade as sort of a, an outlet for these animals, um, it would mean in two years time there would be a surge of beef availab availability. 
and, and we can in fact see it at the minute in terms of the cattle availability um, statistics. If we roll back to 2020, the, the calf exports were back maybe 40 or 50,000 from the year before. And if you now look at the cattle statistics, we've got an extra 50,000 cattle in that age group on farm that, that would or should have been exported. So no, it's, the, the calf exports account for about 10% of the cow of the calf born here to a dairy cow. And they're just an important, you know, market outlet for these animals. There's there's also, um, they're, they're an outlet in particular for the Frisian bulls. You know, there's there's not that much demand here for, for Frisian bull calves. And the Dutch market in particular is, is a very good market for those. Um, and then if we go to Spain, then about 50% of the calves that they take are Frisian bull calves with the balance being Angus. So it just, um, it, it, it is like a, it's an important market outlet because it takes a lot of these spring-born calves that are born in the same period and, and, and removes them from the system as such um, so that in two years' time we don't see a, a, a massive surge in cattle availability, which will then translate back into an impact on the beef price. Of course. Recently we have heard rumours, I suppose, that people were bringing maybe calves to marts and weren't selling them and were abandoning them and um, exporters are finding it difficult to export. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things going on in the world at the moment. Um, some were to do with supply chains, some were to do with storms, even preventing yeah. um, exports. And I suppose in terms of what we can do here in Ireland, do you think farmers are orientating themselves more to a breeding programme that might produce less in the future? Yeah, well, certainly there's been a shift towards more um, more sex semen and more AI. Uh, more sexy AI to get more Frisian helpers and reduce the number of, of bull calves and it is growing in popularity and then you then have the option then to use a beef sired animal then or a beef bull to get a beef calf which is just higher value so I suppose the more effective that this um, that the, these sex semen technologies can be the more higher value animals that can then be used for beef production or, or export in fact because we do export a good proportion of these beef cross calves um, you know, so it, it is about moving in the right direction and, and not having, you know, that that increase in the number of these lower value animals. Now, with regards to to, to markets and access, you know, we, we are reliant on the on the export trade to take a proportion of the calves we produce and you know the unfortunately we are an island and we are at the at the mercy of the weather at times and, and almost every year there's an interruption to the sailings at some stage. But I suppose it's just about having the the right, right standards been implemented and the right planning and, and you know whenever you're you're gathering up a load of calves to have your your voyage and everything planned and, and, and customer lined up. In terms then of the markets that will take our, our exports, our calf exports and so on, um, are there any difficulties that we may run into? Again we're hearing exporters having challenges with countries that won't accept because we don't have IBR for example program, um, things like that, are there challenges ahead? Um, yeah, it, there, there are certainly challenges. Um, you know, we've seen um, France and Belgium in, in recent times bring in, you know, their IBR eradication programs, which means they, they can't accept calves from um, IBR countries that don't have an IBR mm. program in place, which, which we currently don't have. And, and further down the line, it, it will become an issue in other markets. The, the Dutch market, for example, are, are due to implement an IBR free program. Um, the, the, the projected date is 2025. So. We, we're going to have to do something sort of to keep these market options open to us and look about or getting a, an IBR programme in place if we want to continue to export calves to these markets. Finally, Seamus, just the overall outlook then for exports um, from Ireland. 
you were recently on a trade mission in the Gulf region in the United Arab Emirates to, to develop more relationships over there. What sort of markets are we looking at next? I suppose we're, we're continuing to focus on the markets that we have close to home. So um, we have obviously our calves continue to go to Europe. That's their main market outlet. We've then got a, quite a good trade for live animals going to Northern Ireland. So we sent about 70,000 cattle there last year. And then we're looking at, at other third country markets, you know, so we're looking at the likes of Libya and Morocco in particular. So we have a trade, um, we have a visit planned to Morocco in May, hopefully, and then we are hope hoping to buy, bring the, the potential buyers back into the country then later this year. So that's, that's one sort of key market where there's good demand, particularly for that, um, for that dairy origin beef, both, both Angus and Frisian. Um, so, so those, so, so Morocco, Algeria, we've also had so, some interest from Libya and we recently had a trade mission from Israel as well late last year. So hoping to get access there as well. I suppose the big question on everyone's lips is still beef and uh, China. Um, I know Barbie are working very hard, the embassy, the attaché, any indication of, of when we'll get beef back into China? Yeah, no, as you said, like everyone has that goal to get that access back in again, but at the, at the minute I've, I've heard nothing about, you know, where we are on that process. But we're hoping, hoping it's, it's not far away when you see Brazil going out and then back again, you know, you, you'd be hopeful that we would get our access back as soon as possible. And just the final question I'll ask you, Seamus, is in terms of our produce, our exports, globally and in the markets that we currently export to, is it viewed... Uh, is our produce viewed as a premium product or good quality? Does our grass-based system uh, factor into it? Yeah, no, we, we tend to be perceived as a, as a premium product and our grass-fed, green, natural image is certainly a very, very strong part of that. Um, you know, there, there are some markets where we go in at a, at a, with, a, with a lower value product, but, but generally our products are all going into high-end premium contracts um, where our origin green and our sustainability credentials, you know, make it stand out from the rest. Great, Seamus, thank you very much for joining us on no Farmland today. Fianna Fáil, Ireland South MEP Billy Kelleher, you're very welcome to Kerry, where tonight you are the guest speaker at the Kerry IFA AGM. Now, Billy, given your membership of the EU Committee of Inquiry into the Protection of Animals During Transport, can you give us an update as to where things stand in an EU context when it comes to live exports, given its crucial importance to Irish agriculture, especially to our dairy sector? Yes, well, the, the committee published this report uh, just before Christmas. It was a very damning report in the sense that it proposed very stringent measures in terms of animal transport, which effectively would have stopped the live export of, of animals. It would stop the transportation of animals even on the island itself in terms of um, pregnant uh, animals in the last trimester of pregnancy, for example. Uh, calves would not have been able to be moved from farm to farm. So it would have had a, a very, very negative impact on the broader agricultural sector. Uh, that report I rejected, I voted against it, and I didn't table amendments at the plenary session, uh, which um, meant that we actually overturned the recommendations of that particular committee. So we're now waiting for the Commission to look at the Parliament's position, which is uh, you know, much more friendly towards the transportation of animals than the actual committee report, and over the next number of years they will be bringing forward proposals and regulations around the issue of animal transport. There is no doubt there are still significant threats to it, but at least we are now starting from a place where there is an acknowledgement that we must be able to access the European market. And from a dairy point of view, you know, we do need to be able to transport at least um, 
180,000 uh, calves out of the island every year. And if we're not able to do that, it could have a significant impact both on our carbon emissions, our climate obligations, and also on animal welfare itself. In view of the fact we would have an extra 300,000 animals on the island uh, over a two-year period. Billy, is there a concern, though, that there will be changes to the status quo, to what we see at the moment? Can that continue for live exports going from Ireland? Um, is there so much pressure from an animal welfare point of view? Can live exports be sustained at current levels and current conditions? Well, I firmly believe that we can enhance um, animal welfare standards in transportation from Ireland to the European markets. Uh, I think that's an obligation that we have to uh, live up to. Uh, Ireland is accepted as a country that has very high welfare standards already. Uh, we do um, you know, ensure that animals are transported from Ireland to, to Europe have high welfare standards. We want to increase that, so I think stronger veterinary oversight, improvements in the transportation equipment, uh, video surveillance, uh, GPSing, uh, lifetime relay of information of the transportation movements themselves. So there are many areas that we can improve in, but I think fundamentally what we must do in, in Ireland is to ensure that we increase our welfare standards, that there's strong checks in place, veterinary oversight, supervision, and the, in the event of there being breaches, that there would be proper sanctions. And of course, the real issue here has been the failure of the European Union, but more importantly, member states, not to actually implement and enforce the regulations that were already in place. And that was why we had some catastrophic uh, cases of you know, real appalling abuse of animals during transport in some countries uh, in the European Union. We can't allow that to continue. So we must enforce the regulations that are there and then bring forward new proposals that will increase standards, but at the same time allow farmers to transport animals both on the island itself and also to our European markets. And also to our European markets. I'm joined in studio now by Pat Smith of Local Power, who is also the chair of the Micro Renewable Energy Federation. Pat, thank you for joining us today. Uh, pleasure. So first of all, Pat, let's talk about solar. Obviously, we're in a time in the world at the moment that climate change, climate challenges are really coming up and every country in the world, every sector in the world has to try and do their part to reduce emissions, particularly in the run up to 2030 and subsequently in the run up to 2050. In terms of solar in Ireland, particularly for the agricultural community, there's a public consultation, I believe, about to start in relation to, for example, getting exemptions for uh, solar projects. Um, do you think that there is more of a willingness now to push the solar end of things and renewable sources such as that? Yeah, I, I think that um, we're well behind the curve in Ireland uh, compared to the rest of Europe. And farmers would know that who travel. Um, if you go to Germany or England, uh, most farms have solar on the roofs, both for generating their own electricity and for exporting to the grid. Notwithstanding that, there is um, movements that are positive. Uh, for the first time, we've uh, a grid connection agreement um, uh, started in December for this year, which will allow farmers put up to 50 kilowatts of solar on the roofs and get a grid payment for exporting to the grid. Um, planning exclusions are coming, have been very slow, and it's been very disappointing that it's taken three years of um, intensive lobbying by, uh, by MREF uh, to get to a point where we're now at a public consultation. Um, for something that's not costing anything, um, I think the government have questions to answer and the fact that it took so long to get this far. So hopefully we'll have that in the next couple of months 
and as far as I'm concerned, there should be no need for planning for putting solar uh, renewable energy on the roof uh, of farm sheds or indeed homes or whatever else. From a farmer's perspective, um, in talking to farmers, and I would have installed solar on about 50 farms last year, and there's an increasing interest uh, among the farming community to uh, install solar PV, both for their own consumption and for export to the grid. However, economics comes into play, and um, um, the supports that have now been put in place are not attractive enough, in my opinion. They need to be improved, and uh, I would be encouraging the government to increase the grants, particularly to the farming community, and I know that the Minister for Agriculture is looking at this, and certainly by the middle of the year, we're expecting to see very significant grants in place. And with those grants, I think there'll be massive uptake by the farming community. And Pat, there's a 60% grant, I think, there for the solar PV at the moment. What would you think it should be? 80%, 85%? Or is there just not the political will there to really push the well, likes of solar? Well, the grants that are there, are there currently, uh, they're talking about a 60% grant. Uh, that's what the minister has referenced. Um, we'll have to wait and see what, uh, in effect, what the grant will be. But equally important to what the percentage of grant is, is that the restrictions that are currently in place are removed and that uh, the farmer and whoever their installer is um, are, are allowed to size the system so that they can optimise the economics from a farming perspective. So in TAMS, up until now, there's a 40% grant or a 60% grant for, uh, for young farmers. Uh, but for dairy, uh, livestock and tillage farms, the size of the system is restricted to a maximum of 11 kilowatts, which is not practical in a, lo in a lot of situations, practical in some situations, but not practical in a lot of situations. Uh, that needs to be uh, removed. And the grant needs to be easily accessible. And, um, and, um, and, and I also think, very importantly, that the grant should be a separate wallet of money so that people who have already used their, uh, their full allocation on their TAMs for building uh, um, milking parlours or whatever, that they should have a special wallet of money that's available that they can go and apply for that grant. So in essence, there should be a way for farmers to access funds for solar separate to maybe the general public? Well, in, in, uh, certainly in TAMs, and, and uh, you know, there was a 10 million budget put in place uh, three years ago for solar PV. Uh, only 300,000 of that, I understand, has been drawn down because the restrictions were too much. And an awful lot of the farmers who basically uh, would have liked to avail of that ten, uh, part of that 10 million had already used their allocation. So the, whatever the rules are, uh, and whatever the percentage is, uh, what the government need to do more than anything else is make it easily accessible and get rid of some of the restrictions so that farmers can optimise the use of solar PV both for the consumption of energy on their own farm but also for the export of energy to the grid. In terms of installing solar PV, let's take for example a dairy farmer, not particularly massive but not small, maybe 50 to 60 cows, um, a, couple of parlor, a couple of sheds, a parlour, what would it cost for them to install two to three solar panels, four solar panels? Yeah, the system size will be dictated by the energy use on the farm. Um, the, um, and the other restricting factor is whether the supply is single phase or three phase. But a typical dairy farm, uh, single phase with maybe the home linked to the farm, um, um, probably putting on um, nine kilowatts of solar PV between six and nine kilowatts is probably the way to go. 
uh, that will generate probably 30 to 40 percent of their daytime energy requirements. It won't generate at all. And uh, the cost can be anywhere from, I suppose, 10 to 15,000 before they get the, uh, any grant that's available. Um, thankfully, um, for a renewable investment, the VAT is refundable, which is a big positive for the farming community. And uh, particularly for sole traders, um, the tax benefit can be very attractive in the, in the fact that you can write 100% of the investment off against your tax in the year of the investment. Solar PV makes good economic sense. Energy prices are increasing. And for every, every five cent that electricity prices increases, the payback drops a year. So ultimately, what sort of savings could a farmer make? Um, well, it's interesting in my assessment of farms over the last few years that the, for example, on dairy farms, the cost of energy can be anywhere between one cent per litre of milk to three cents per litre of milk. So there's efficiency issues. Um, but um, the typical farm should be planning to displace 30 to 40% of their bought-in electricity. And that can be anywhere between two grand a year and 10 grand a year, depending on the farm size. Is it worth the while of smaller farmers to invest in solar? Every, everybody, in my humble opinion, every home, farm and business in the country will have solar PV on the roofs in the years to come. It'll be driven by economics in the first sense, by way of whatever supports are available and the fact that energy prices are increasing. It will also be driven by the sustainability piece. And we now uh, see the impact of um, a geopolitical uh, issue in the Ukraine on diesel prices, on uh, electricity prices and what, what not. And it'll also be driven by policy because we have to decarbonise. Um, we can talk to talk, but every citizen in the country has a role to play in trying to meet those uh, climate change targets um, that uh, we've now uh, signed up to. And farmers who do install solar PV, what is the situation with them exporting back to the grid? And, you know, there has been talk recently as well that farmers may not get the credits for uh, so using solar energy or may not get credit for selling back to the grid. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a conundrum there for the department in that um, at European level, I think there's an issue uh, that if they give a TAMS grant that um, somehow a farmer can't then get paid for exporting to the grid. Um, I certainly had some discussions with the Department of Agriculture and I think I've highlighted um, the impracticality of what they're proposing um, and the fact that it's not going to be policeable. So uh, I'm hoping that whatever grants um, are available that come forward, that uh, the farmer will be able to export to the grid. He may not get a premium payment for exporting to the grid, but he should be allowed to get a, a market-related payment which is not subsidised. And then in terms of the provider of the grants, you're saying there it's obviously the responsibility of the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, probably more so than the Department of Environment? Well, there, there are a number of different grants available now. And the SAEI um, have done a great job in administrating, uh, for example, the domestic grant for solar PV. And I believe they're very well equipped uh, to administer grants uh, to businesses and indeed farms going forward. Um, and there is a, a new grant being mooted. Again, we, I, I don't think it's ambitious enough, certainly for small businesses and farms that don't want to go down the TAMS route. I think it should be uh, improved. Um, but the farmer will have a number of options. He will be able to use some of his TAMS wallet to invest in solar PV, or he will be able to maybe get a grant through the SAEI. And uh, now there is also a premium payment available uh, for farmers who want to export to the grid for up to 50 kilowatts. Are there any challenges in that whole process at the moment in terms of trying to get solar 
onto the top of a shed in a farm? Um, look, at solar PV is a well-proven technology. And once you use the right technology, you're investing into something that can last decades. Uh, we have a panel, for example, that is warranted for both 30 years product and 30 year performance manufactured in Germany. So once you use the right technology, um, um, I believe that it's a very wise investment. Once the investment is paid for, then unless the sky falls in, you're going to have free energy um, for, uh, for decades. And, uh, and certainly um, the, the economics of it, is, is, it makes sense. There's no moving parts. Uh, it's all electrical, so the maintenance element of it is very low. And um, I don't see any reasons. The bureaucracy, I suppose, of grants is the one thing that needs to be simplified. Make it simple and, uh, and encourage people to go about um, investing. I think the banks are up for lending uh, the, 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 what's required. Um, the credit unions are there. And indeed, um, by way of paybacks, a farmer can look forward to between three and five year uh, payback on his investment. And that's not bad when you're looking at a technology that can uh, deliver for the next 30, 40 years for him. And Pat, in, ter <laughs> Pat, in terms of the solar at the moment then, in the world that we currently live in, with inflation rising daily and the cost of energy rising daily, do you feel there should be more of a push and more support coming from the likes of the department or from government in a way of seeking a solution to rising energy costs at the minute? Um, this is a, uh, it's a complex one and the government do have the wherewithal uh, to try and, and, and assist and, and I think the way energy prices are going they're going to have to intervene a lot more um, and, and, and certainly think they're up for it. Uh, we're in uncharted waters, it's um, 70 or uh, 80 years since we uh, had a situation like we now have in Europe and uh, nobody knows what's going to happen in the next coming months. And all we can do and all farmers can do is control the controllables and hope that the government can guide and assist in every way possible to see homes and businesses through this because it's not going to be easy for everyone. And finally, Pat, just referring back to what we were discussing there earlier in relation to the exemptions that may come through the planning process for solar projects. Do you think that they could be open to perhaps environmental challenges? Um, I think the process has been extensive. Um, and, um, and I'd hope um, and pray uh, that in the context of a renewable resource that um, is going to help the sustainability of, of energy generation in Ireland that uh, people would look at um, as a positive move and that the, I, I don't see uh, any objections. I don't uh, think there will be. Um, but we're living in Ireland. Well, there have been challenges, I suppose, to individual projects, you know, in every local authority area around the country previously. So I suppose, and that was one that required planning permission. So I was just wondering if there could be any room there that it, it might be open to challenge. But as you said, it is a renewable resource. Everything is open to challenge. But our experience to date is uh, unlike big wind, where there's a lot of objection, we don't see people objecting um, uh, to solar PV. Um, it's, um, it's a renewable technology. Uh, I think that uh, one thing that everyone in this country has to wake up to is self-sufficiency in, in energy. It's something that we should have a plan to attain. And, um, um, and in that context, I think the planning rules have to be amended uh, to try and ensure that whether it's solar PV or anaerobic digestion plants or whatever else, that they can be get through the planning process quickly and that they can be built out as vital infrastructure. 
because of course there is a lot of talk at the moment about anaerobic digestion, biomethane, um, in terms of fertilizer. Is that something that we should be more orientated towards? Yeah, well, uh, in local power, I've had a great interest in anaerobic digestion for the last number of years, and we put a team together that um, provides both the technology and the management, um, a, a turnkey solution for uh, big uh, anaerobic digestion plants for biomethane. And uh, with the way fertilizer prices are going, I think there is now a real opportunity for the government uh, to, to grab this uh, AD um, 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 industry uh, and get it going. And, um, and I think that um, the farming community are going to be central to it. And if it's done properly, we could create a lot of biomethane, which will re reduce our gas imports significantly. And we can create a biofertilizer that can also reduce our fertilizer costs significantly going forward. And the farming community have to be very much uh, central to all of this. Um, for example, Estella, I have a, a pilot project going on in uh, the UK at the minute, uh, where the digestate, uh, which is at the end of the AD process, where we're dewatering de that digestate using a French technology uh, to create a biofertilizer. And um, with the way prices are going, the economics of this has all become impossible. And I think it's something that the farming community should be encouraged to get more involved in. Pat Smith, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure, thank you. That's all from this episode of Farmland. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned to Agriland for the latest in agricultural news.